Turn to John chapter 17. In chapter 16, Jesus has been telling his disciples that they can pray to the Father themselves in his name and that God will answer their prayers. And that is a wonderful promise, a wonderful blessing that we receive. If we are his disciples, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we can go to him. We can go to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, asking what we will, and we will receive it. Now, moving into chapter 17, Jesus takes the opportunity to demonstrate and confirm what he has been teaching to them by praying himself. He's been telling them they can pray, they need to pray, He's been telling them to pray. He's been saying that God will answer their prayers. And then, what does he do? He closes by praying. It's fitting, right? And what we see is that he prays for some of the very things that he has been promising his disciples will happen. So he says, this is going to happen, and then he prays to God that it will happen. He prays that God will keep them in his name, distinguishing between them and Judas, who is currently out betraying him, just left before this section of scripture. And he had been distinguishing between them and saying that even as the disciples were about to fall away from him as he goes to the cross that they will be established firm. And then, what does he do? He turns and he begins to pray that God will establish them firm. But I want you to pay special attention to how Jesus bases his prayer in the will of the Father. He makes, the, he makes God the Father's will what God wants, right? That's what his will is, what God wants. That's what Jesus uses as the basis for why he asks for things. He says, because this is your will, do this. In the Lord's Prayer, which is not this passage, Jesus teaches his disciples and us how to pray. And his prayer is both something that we can recite and pray word for word, and it's also a helpful model for how we can pray. You understand? We can both simply pray those exact words, and we can use it to understand how we should pray, what what kinds of things we should pray for. And today, as we read the start of this prayer, it's a different prayer, you'll see that there's a similar pattern as the start of the Lord's Prayer. This prayer is called 
the high priestly prayer. Here in John 17, you have the high priestly prayer. And we all hopefully know the Lord's Prayer, but I'll give you a little bit of it that you can pay attention to. Just so it's fresh in our minds, the Lord's Prayer starts, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy, may your name be holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the start of the Lord's Prayer. And as we read this, the start of this high priestly prayer, we'll see that there's similarity in the pattern to how Jesus is praying. We'll see that prayer is a humble act that requires acknowledging properly who God is and seeking his will. That's central to what Jesus does, and it's what I want us to be learning as we read this passage this morning from John chapter 17. We'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. There's that request. (laughs) Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You notice how Jesus speaks in the past tense in this passage about things that haven't happened yet. Jesus is praying with so much confidence and so much perfect knowledge of what is coming, what is about to happen, that he speaks in the past tense about things that have yet to happen. Let me give you a couple of examples from our passage. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world. He's standing right in front of them. He's standing with the disciples as he prays this. And he says, I am no longer in the world. What's going on there is not that Jesus is mad, crazy, doesn't know how to talk, doesn't understand Greek or anything like that. And it's not that the translators didn't understand how to translate Greek into English. What's going on there is Jesus knows what is happening, what is about to happen. And so he speaks from the future about what is, what is going to happen. He has absolute confidence. He knows exactly what's coming. He knows he's going out of the world. That's what he just got done explaining to them. In chapter 16, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you won't be able to come with me. right? And so... Here he is, and Jesus prays for things to happen, and he explains things that are going to happen with that level of confidence. What an encouragement this is to us to pray. How strengthening this is to us to go to the Lord with our requests. Jesus who knows for sure what is going to happen and exactly what is going to happen, so much so that he can speak in the past tense about things that haven't happened yet. He's that sure about them. Jesus prays to the Father. And why? Well, sure, partly it's to encourage his disciples Right? To encourage them to pray, but also just to encourage them, to strengthen them, because he's about to go away. And he knows that that's going to be troubling to them. And he knows that they're about to fall into serious sin by abandoning him as he goes through his arrest and his crucifixion. Right? And so what does he do? He prays for them that... God would keep them, right? That the Heavenly Father would keep them. Now, this would be a serious encouragement coming from Jesus. If you're the disciples and you've seen Jesus pray to the Father and then raise Lazarus from the dead, okay, and now he prays for, the, for his disciples that God would keep them, Do you think the disciples are are strengthened by that? Do you think they're encouraged by that? That here is Jesus who can calm the storms and the waves and the wind with a word. Peace, be still. 
and the storm stops. Here's a man, Jesus Christ, who, who can go to, the, go to the Father and raise up the dead. And here he is going to the Father and saying, keep them. I have kept them. None of them have been lost. Do you see that past tense? He's not saying that, you know, so far, none of them have been lost. He is saying, I haven't lost a single one of them. And he's speaking this whole prayer with that future past tense. Even as he is praying that the Heavenly Father would keep them, he is declaring that none of them will be lost. What encouragement. As the disciples hear this prayer that they will be preserved, unlike the world and unlike Judas, they become sure that there is a difference between them and the world, between them and Judas. And that is extremely important. Knowing that there is a difference. That their abandonment of Jesus, which he has just told them will happen in chapter 16, is not the same thing that Judas did by betraying Jesus. Apart from that, don't you think you would have doubt? If you're Peter and you deny the Lord three times, which we'll see in the coming chapters, this is what Peter does, right? Don't you think you would, you would wonder, am I just another Judas? And yet, here you have this prayer. Jesus speaking from the future, in the past tense, with absolute certainty, praying to the Father, Lord, Father, keep them in your name. They, not a one of them, has been lost. Except for Judas, the son of perdition. And so we know that there is a difference. If we are in Christ if we have repented of our sins, if we have put our faith in him, we know there is a difference. Is there a difference? Do you know that there is a difference between you and the world? So far I've been talking about the disciples, right? But one of the most beautiful things for us in this passage, as we read Christ's prayer, is that you go a few verses further along and we see that Jesus is praying for us. This is not limited to his disciples. Verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Through the word of the disciples, and that's what this book is, John, the disciple, wrote down a record of what Jesus Christ did on earth in order that 
we might believe and that believing we might have life in his name is why he says he wrote the book, right? And so here he, Jesus is speaking, again, with utmost confidence about things that have yet to happen, speaking about them in the past tense. Not a one of them will be lost. Not a one of his people will be lost. And then he says, and I'm not talking just about John and the other, the rest of the 11. I'm talking about everyone who believes through their words. Here are the words. Do you believe? Have you come to believe in Jesus Christ through the words of his apostles, passed down, recorded for us, proclaimed in the preaching of God's word through the teaching of our parents? Here are the words. Everyone who believes, they will not be cast out. They will not be lost As we read elsewhere, they cannot be taken from the hand of God. If you are one of those who has heard about Jesus and believed in him, you are one of the people he is praying for in our passage. And so this is not just to encourage his disciples, the eleven. It is to encourage us. It is for our strengthening. On the other hand, if you are not one of those who has believed, he says in verse 19, or verse 9 rather, that he is not praying for you. I ask, verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This distinction is strengthening, encouraging, helpful, delightful to those who find themselves in God's hand, knowing that they will never be cast out, knowing that Jesus' prayer will be answered, that he will Keep us to the end. That we will remain in his name. And yet, the prayer is disastrous for those who do not repent and believe because he is not praying for Judas. He is not praying for the world. So Jesus prays with absolute knowledge and he still goes to the Father. And so we must go to the Father. If Jesus, who knows what is going to happen from before all time and who is God and came down from the Father with the same glory of the Father, if he can humble himself to pray and ask things of the Father. 
Surely you can be humble enough to ask for what you assume he's going to give you anyway. Your daily bread. We live in America. There's no doubt of our daily bread, is there? When has anybody ever been worried that they're not going to get their daily bread? Sure, I'm sure there's a couple of people. Tate's been worried. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's a reasonable fear, right? <laughs> there's food everywhere, right? There's food everywhere. And yet, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to ask, give us this day our daily bread. And so are you humble? Are you willing to ask for your food? Are you willing to thank him for it? And if you make a habit of thanking him for it, why not make a habit of asking him for it too? If you enjoy your kids, thank God for them. And if you think kids are good, ask God for them. These are good things, right? And so we ask. But it requires us to be humble. And if Jesus can pray confidently that God will save his pathetic disciples who are about to abandon him, then surely you can pray that God will save your children as well and not live with that as your assumption, but rather as your prayer. By faith, confident that God will give you answer to that prayer. But this brings us to the question of God's will, because immediately, as we think about praying for something that important, we think about our loved ones, whether it's our children, extended family members, our parents, the people that we're closest to, that we love the most, and we think about praying to God that their souls would be saved, that is, that is a difficult thought because it requires us to submit our will to the will of the Father and to say, my desire is that you will save your people and that my children, my mom, my sister will be in your people. And the moment you pray that, you have, to, you have to realize that by praying for it, just like by praying for your daily bread, that it only happens if God wills it. The fact that you have plenty of food is because God wills it. Not because of the power of your own arm. Not because 
you're smarter or better than the people in the rest of the world that don't have food, but because God wills it. And it's the same with salvation. That we think of our children, we think of praying for their salvation, you think, you know what, I'd rather just not pray because I don't actually want to think about it. And the reason I don't want to think about it is because I'm afraid if the answer is no. I don't want the answer to be no. What is God's will? What is his will? Will he save the people I love or won't he? And how do I know? Because if he won't, you know what? I don't want to think about it. And in fact, I'm not sure I'm willing to serve him. God's will. Jesus prays because he wants God's will to happen. Because he wants his Father's will to happen. Verse 4. Having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. God the Father gave the Son work to do, to accomplish. And he says, I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. Your will has been done. <laughs> you see that? That's what that statement means. Verse 4, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And then again in verse 6, speaking of his disciples, they have kept your word. Your will has been done. By me, your will has been done by them. And then again in verse 12, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And what is the scripture? God's word, God's command, God's will. So that the scripture would be fulfilled. This is why Jesus prays, because he desires that the Father's will would be done. And the Lord's Prayer has the same thing. We saw it, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. God's will is revealed to us in his word, in scripture. Now, if you ever talk to people about God, if you ever talk to people about what it means to be a Christian, about why you're a Christian. If you ever call people to put their faith in God and repent of their sins, this is something that you're going to run up against. This question of God's will. It'll come in various forms. It'll be people talking about, like uh, Pilate, what is truth? That was Pilate, right? What is truth? That's a question of what is God's, you know, what is God's command? What has he done? What is his will? What is truth? God's word is truth. Or it'll come in the form of people talking about uh, or questioning why God does certain things. Ultimately, 
You know, the, the question of the, the problem of evil is a question of God's will. Why does God allow, why does God will that the world is like this? That there's evil people doing evil things. Isn't that, doesn't that make God himself evil? That's, what they'll, that's, that's the, the goal, of, that's the motivation of that kind of question. You understand? When you talk to people about God, when you talk about his gospel, the gospel doesn't make sense until our sin is understood. Because the gospel is the good news that our sin can be forgiven. That Jesus Christ took our sin, became sin in our place, was condemned on our behalf so that we could receive life. And so we have to understand sin. And so when you're talking to people about God, when you're talking to them about the gospel, you're going to be talking about sin or you're not going to be talking about anything. And often when you're explaining sin, a simple question will come up. Why should I obey? Why should I obey? Why does God demand this obedience? And ultimately, it'll work its way back to the question, why does man even exist? If God created this world, why? Why did he make me? Why did he make us? And all of these are a question of God's will. What does God desire? What is God doing? And why? And the answer is simply that we should obey because God made us. He's the creator. And that he made us to glorify himself. He made us to glorify himself. Do you guys see the the theme of the glory of the Father in this prayer? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Why do we exist? It's so that we can glorify the Father. And when you speak about that, you'll have people scoff. Sounds like a pretty insecure guy to me. The problem of evil, and this, this accusation that God is insecure because he demands that we glorify him, 
that is simply seeking to attribute evil to God because that's the best way for you to convince yourself that there's no need for you to obey him, that there's no need for you to do his will. If God's will is good, then we ought to do it. If God's will is bad, then we're completely off the hook, aren't we? And so if you can say that his will is just selfish or his will just comes out of him being insecure or his will comes simply, or he he became evil because he let evil happen in this earth, the moment you say that, you've attributed evil to God. And you're off the hook. You're scot-free. But another way to get off the hook, another way to say, I don't have to and I don't, I don't want to and, there, and I don't have to seek the will of God is simply to declare that he doesn't exist. Right? If God doesn't exist, then that also makes the problem go away. He can't have a will if he doesn't exist. There are, this, this just boggles my mind. There are people, you can, smart people, well-educated people, people who really have way more brains than I do, will actually claim that there must be extraterrestrial life. There must be aliens. Okay? And we have no evidence that aliens exist. They're simply basing it on the fact that, well, we exist, and therefore there must be other things like us out there that exist. Right? And so they'll say, you know, there's aliens out there, and they're so advanced that they can build theoretical structures that are the size of the Earth's orbit around a star, keeping all of the energy of that star to make it do work for their society. This is legitimate. There are scientific papers being written about what you, whether or not you would be able to observe one of these theoretical structures built by this alien super race. Okay? <clears throat> they'll say that there's so that, that there must be because of infinity and we can't comprehend that but because of infinity and the number of years that are in infinity and the number of chances that exist in infinite stars and infinite planets in an infinite amount of time that therefore there must be a race that's infinitely more powerful than us out there somewhere this this extraterrestrial alien civilization, they'll, they'll say they could even be so advanced that what we see as physics, the physical laws, are actually just side effects of whatever these aliens are doing. That we wouldn't be able to observe them because if we tried to observe them, they would just look like, it would just look like we were seeing physical laws we, you know, 
the, the constants that you have to plug into, into physics equations, those, that, that those must come from somewhere. And, and so really, how does this, let me ask you, how does this differ from believing in a God? Do you understand what I'm saying? You have friends who believe in aliens. And why do people believe in aliens? Much of the time, the reason people believe in aliens is because they want an excuse to not believe in God. And so they posit this other thing. And the, and the smarter they are, the more bizarre the creation in their own mind gets. And then they scoff at the idea of a creator. They say that their alien civilizations can build these huge megastructures in space, larger than stars, that would be invisible to any tool that we could possibly imagine to try to see them or measure them. That's how advanced they are. But God? And then you don't have to worry about what his will is, do you? All you have to worry about is whether these aliens want us to keep living or not. Because if they don't, boy, we're in trouble. But again, how does that differ from God? I mean, there is a difference, you understand? I'm just saying, how, does, how, does believing, how is believing in that any easier? Any less a, a, a declaration of faith in something that you cannot see, cannot prove, cannot touch, cannot measure. It's faith. And so what I'm doing is I'm working my way backwards from God's will to who God is. Do you understand? God's will flows out of who God is. God is the creator of the universe. He's the one who created the laws of nature, of physics. He's the one who put the universe into motion. He's the one who created man. He's the one who has a particular plan for each man. He is the one who owns us. Owns. Not a pleasant word in our society, is it? And yet we see that in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. God's people are owned. Owned by God. Jesus knows who God is. And it's what he starts with in his prayer. Father, God, you have all the glory, and my work here is done. Now glorify me so that you will be glorified. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. May your name be glorified. May your name be made holy. And Jesus knows his place is by the side of the Father. And amazingly, his prayer is that we would be glorified with him so that we can have that same unity as he and the Father have. Look at that, verses 10 and 11. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Us. Christ has been glorified in us. Ending in verse 11, that they may be one even as we are. We exist because the Father was pleased to create us in order to give us to his Son, so that we would bring his Son glory. And as his Son is brought glory, so the Father is brought glory. How? By saving us, his people, and giving them faith and helping them to obey. But he's also glorified by punishing the wicked. Jesus is pleased for the will of the Father to be done, even in the losing of one of his 12 disciples, so that the scripture may be fulfilled, is what he says. How does that glorify God? How is that just? This is what Paul asks. This is what Paul knows that we will ask. When in Romans 9, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? I mean, we've just been talking about who the, you know, he is the creator. His will is done. His will is done in deciding that 11 will be saved and that one will be, what? Cast out. Will be damned. One will be Judas. One will reject. One will betray. And that is God's will. So how how does he still find fault? If it's all just his will being done? Who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, 
even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Praise God. Do you want God's will? Is it your desire that the scriptures will be fulfilled? When you read Revelation and you read of the saints under the throne of God, it's glorious. Do you want it? When you read Revelation and you read of Babylon being destroyed, it's glorious. Do you want it? Do you want God's will? Some of you today may not know the answer to that question. I don't know. It seems awfully harsh. Parts of it I want, parts of it I don't. Or maybe you think, I don't even know what God's will is. Well, until you know him as your Savior, you cannot know his will and love it. But if you get to know him yourself as a humble vessel, If you go to him, he will not cast you out, and you will be a vessel of mercy and not a vessel of wrath. And that's the good news. Let's pray.